0: Okay. good evening, everybody. Um, Good to see such a big audience again. My name is Christina Musalt. I'm a fellow here at the philosophy department and uh, the deputy director of the Forum for European Philosophy. And it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce to you um, Professor Simon Baron Cohen, who, um, as many of you will know, I suspect, is an expert in autism, and uh, developmental psychopathology. He is a professor of developmental psychopathology at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at Trinity College. And he's also the director of the Autism Research Center in Cambridge um, and has done for a long time now uh, research into social neuroscience. He has published a huge number of articles, quite a few books as well. Um, Some of you might know his book Mind Blindness or his book The Essential Difference, just to name a couple of the many books that he has published. And he has just uh, written a new book, which is a very um, provocative, interesting, fascinating book proposing a new theory of human cruelty. And um, he's going to present this theory to us tonight. I should mention that after the talk, there will be an opportunity to buy the book and or to get your book signed. Uh, So I will ask you after the lecture to just remain seated so we can go outside. get the table set up for the book signing, and then you can, you can come out and um, get your book signed if you like. Um, also, as always, with the Forum for European Philosophy, we will try to leave a lot of time for discussion with the audience, questions and comments from you. So um, Simon will be talking for about 45 to 50 minutes, and then we'll have um, about half an hour for discussion with you. And um, I now hand over the word and look forward to his presentation.
1: Thank you very much and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at the LSE. Uh, thank you for that uh, warm introduction. So have you, as you've heard, I'm going to be talking for about 45 minutes and I for one am looking forward to your questions and comments afterwards. Uh, in many ways it might be the most interesting part of the evening. Um, the, the title of my talk, as you can see, Zero Degrees of Empathy. Um, and uh, before I start I want to just acknowledge that I'm going to be uh, describing the research that's been conducted by my collaborators Uh, and uh, uh, I'm just one member of quite a large team so I'm here um, in person but when I'm speaking I'm thinking of this team of people behind me Um, lots of names on this on this slide some of them are psychologists and um, some of them are involved in brain scanning. So we'll be hearing a little bit about, um, about the brain basis of empathy. Uh, but you can also see that some of them are scientists working at the level of biology, particularly um, the role of hormones and genetics. So I'm going to start with, um, you'll have to forgive me, but uh, a slightly distressing image Um, So this is a a rather poor quality photograph of two scientists, two doctors, um, who were working in the Dachau concentration camp during the Second World War, and they were performing an experiment. And I'm presenting this as my first example of uh, a challenge to us, a puzzle, of how people can. are capable of acts of cruelty towards fellow human beings. So these two scientists were interested in how long this inmate could survive in freezing water. And uh, like good scientists, they were collecting data, uh, they were performing measurements, um, and they were looking at the the subject's physiology and recording how long they stayed alive uh, in freezing temperatures, obviously many of their subjects died. What's puzzling um, to us, you know, with uh, sixty years of hindsight, uh, is how this could ever have been possible. These were educated people, uh, medics, scientists, people um, professions <laughs> that we think we can trust, and yet they were they were treating the subject of their experiment mm. as if the person was simply an object. Indeed, the word subject is probably inappropriate because when we think of the word subject in an experiment, we're thinking about a person with subjectivity, with with thoughts and feelings, and yet these two men were presumably, um, their minds were not on on the subjectivity of the person in, in the freezing water, but simply on the person as an object, The Nazis are uh, perhaps one example of uh, extremes of human cruelty. But I don't want to get too focused on the Nazis because actually the, the news every day is full of examples of extremes of human cruelty. And I'm not going to um, spoil your evening by giving you too many examples. So I've just limited it to three, three more here. So the first is... Um, Uh, an example from someone we'll come back to a little later in in the lecture someone who's in a bar and gets into a fight and uh, pushes a broken bottle into the other person's face and again it's the act that I'm interested in what happens at the point that the person performs the act knowing that they're going to hurt the other person what's happened to, to their empathy that they can do such a thing The second example, again, it's a character we'll come back to a little later in the talk, is a mother who screams at her child, I hate you. So now we're not looking at an act of of physical cruelty, but we're still looking at an act of, of verbal cruelty, because at the point when that parent screams those three words, is she really aware of the impact of how her words can hurt another person, in this case a child? and how, does, how is it even possible that a human being can do this to another person uh, we think of parenthood as all about affection and yet uh, some people can do this and the third one again I don't want to, um, to to burden you with these very depressing examples but we hear of this all the time that soldiers in a war situation or even Um, I'm ashamed to say, in a peacekeeping situation, so sometimes even our United Nations peacekeeping soldiers uh, get um, uh, discovered and reported to have committed acts of rape. Again, what's happening in the mind of the person who can hurt another person in this way? Well, the old theory of human cruelty um, is that we tend to say that the person was capable of these acts because he or she was evil. Uh, I'm not very satisfied with the term evil. I imagine many of you are also not satisfied with it. But I think it, it, we need to put it up as, uh, as an example of the old theory because it's still around. It's in the media. Uh, it's, we, hear the, we hear the word all the time. Um, I'm not satisfied with it as a scientist because I don't think it's explanatory. Uh, Indeed, as you can see here, I'm suggesting that there's some circularity to it. That if you think of the word evil as just another word for bad, or the opposite of good, then we're simply saying, he did something bad because he's bad. So it doesn't really take us any further forward, and it has this circularity. It's obviously a word that's very potent, the word evil. Um, We've got it from theology, Uh, It conjures up all sorts of images of uh, satanic creatures. Uh, But I'm going to argue that what we also need is something that's a real explanation. Uh, And for a scientist as I am, I don't think this counts as an explanation at all. So what I'm going to be arguing is that we need a new theory of human cruelty to explain human cruelty. And I'm going to argue that in place of the term evil, we should be using the term empathy erosion. So I'll be talking a little bit about empathy about what this special substance is uh, about how we all possess it to varying degrees and how you can lose it Uh, how your empathy can be eroded in different ways and looking at the the ways in which uh, empathy can be lost but I'm going to argue that in contrast to the term evil empathy is scientifically useful because it's tractable you can actually do something with it Um, so scientists uh, like to measure things and empathy can be measured we'll be looking at that Um, scientists like to put things under the microscope analyse them, dissect them and understand how um, systems work and again I'm going to argue that empathy is that kind of thing, that we can do that and most importantly scientists like to make predictions in order to either confirm or refute their theories. They like to make predictions, and unlike the concept of evil, I think what you'll see is that the concept of empathy does lead to novel predictions. For example, we can ask, where in the brain does empathy live? And we can make predictions about uh, to localize it in the brain and see whether those predictions are right. Before I um, tell you about the science of, of empathy and to see whether it stands up as an explanation for acts of cruelty, I think we need to start with a definition. So we've got the term empathy in our English language. We use the term all the time. So we think we know what it means. Here I've uh, suggested that we need to step back from it and actually analyze it, just in terms of uh, its meaning. And what what I'm suggesting here is that empathy has at least two components. And this constitutes my definition. What you'll find, those of you who are interested in this topic, or those of you who work in this area, is that actually there are many definitions of empathy. And different theorists suggest that there are fewer or more components. I think at a minimum there are two components. So the first is uh, what psychologists call cognitive it's the understanding or the recognition element and I've defined that as the drive to identify another person's thoughts and feelings. So putting yourself into someone else's shoes to imagine what they might think or feel. So cognition, I'm a psychologist, is just another word for how we process the information, how we we understand the information. But I think empathy has a second component which is more the response element. It's not just about recognising what someone might be feeling or thinking, but it's also about how we respond and this is uh, under the term affective. Affective is another word for emotional, but what we're really looking at is what is your emotional response to someone else's thoughts and feelings. So that's my second definition, the drive to respond with an appropriate emotion to someone else's thoughts and feelings. Now the reason I think that you need both components to say that somebody has empathy is you could easily imagine that somebody might have one component without the other. And if that was the case, we might not want to, to accord that person empathy. So let's, supposing, uh, let's suppose that someone could do the first part but they couldn't do the second part. They could recognize uh, that their victim was in pain very accurately but they didn't have the appropriate emotional response of wanting to alleviate someone's pain or distress, uh, very much characterising the psychopath that we'll talk about shortly. So in situations like that, where someone can do the first part of empathy but not the second part, I think we'd want to hold back from saying that person has empathy. This next slide also um, is intended to get across another idea which will come up Throughout the talk, which is that empathy isn't an all or none affair. It's not that you either have it or you don't have it, but it comes by degrees. So here we've got the familiar bell curve, which I'm calling the empathy bell curve. And uh, I've marked out on the horizontal axis, the x axis, uh, six degrees of empathy. The idea being that most of us are somewhere in the middle. Uh, But some people are very low in empathy. Uh, most of us are average, and some people may be very high in empathy. So uh, I'm going to be showing you some evidence for that claim that actually uh, empathy uh, is a a continuum, a spectrum, and we'll be asking the question, what determines where you lie on that, that spectrum? In fact, this leads me very nicely into the first way that we can measure empathy, which is using questionnaires. So this is one such questionnaire, it's called the Empathy Quotient, the EQ, and you can just see two examples of items on this questionnaire, and the way it works is you read each statement and you're asked to say whether you agree or disagree with each statement as a description of you. Uh, You can see that both of these examples are about social sensitivity, uh, and uh, what you see at the bottom of this slide is real data, but whereas in the previous slide we saw a, uh, an idealized um, bell curve, that normal distribution, here we've got real data, and actually it does produce um, a normal distribution. So this is using a questionnaire in a population, a general population of thousands of people. Most of us are scoring somewhere in the middle. Some people are very high, and some people are very low. To get across this idea of individual differences, you can also see that if you just carve up the population by gender, you see differences in scores that women, on average, uh, tend to score higher than men on this self-report measure of empathy. So that's already showing us that there are individual differences. But actually, if you just go across that, uh, that ruler, that way of measuring empathy, you can see that there's every shade Of empathy from low to high. Another way that you can measure empathy is to give people tests of ability or performance as psychologists call it Uh, and here we've got uh, one such test uh, which is where you look at photographs of facial expressions and you have to uh, pick which of these four words that surrounds the photo best describes what the person in the photo is thinking or feeling. So this is a test we've used again in the adult population, the general population. Um, You've been looking at this photo whilst I've been talking, um, and the correct word there is dispirited. Um, Some of you might be quite pleased that you got that right. (laughs) Um, uh, So you might be able to tell that she's looking a bit sad. And if you did get that right, uh, you did it on the basis of very minimal information, uh, information about her emotional expression just around the eyes. We haven't got the whole face, we haven't got any background context, so we don't know why she's looking the way she's looking. But if you were able to pick out her emotional state, it shows that we, uh, as, as human beings, can read each other's faces on the basis of quite minimal cues. What you can see again at the bottom of this uh, slide is that when we've given that test, Uh, 25 such photographs to men and women in the population. Women score slightly but statistically significantly higher than men. So this is the average, the mean, and in brackets is what's called the standard deviation, a measure of the variance. And uh, again, like the questionnaire we saw earlier, women are scoring slightly but um, uh, significantly better than men, suggesting again individual differences in empathy. But back to the whole question of explaining human cruelty. Um, the philosopher Martin Buber was also very interested in this, this problem, this question. And he also picked out that actually it's the point where people start treating other people as objects that constitutes the point where we've lost our empathy. So Martin Buber was, uh, was an Austrian philosopher Uh, working at the University of Frankfurt, and he made this distinction in German, but I'm not going to try and pronounce the German, uh, in terms of two ways that we can treat other people. We can either be in the mode of I-you relationships or I-it relationships. So when we're interacting with another person, we can either treat that person as a person, in which case our empathy is switched on, or we can treat that person as an object, in which case our empathy is switched off by varying degrees. And he's arguing that as soon as we make that shift from treating a person as a person to as an object, we've lost our empathy. Uh, Martin Buber resigned his professorship in 1933 as he could see uh, the changes that were happening in the society around him. But I think the... uh, the ideas he was, uh, he was um, uh, proposing in those days are as relevant uh, then as they, were, as they are today. I'm now going to shift to talk about um, uh, the perspective from psychiatry because I think psychiatry as a branch of medicine can give us uh, a way of looking at different routes to losing your empathy. And I'm going to argue that if we're trying to understand How people end up at zero degrees of empathy, so right at the extreme, that left-hand extreme of the bell curve, there are at least three different medical conditions that can leave you in that state. Psychiatry calls them the personality disorders, and I'm going to tell you briefly about them, but uh, I also want to argue that instead of just thinking about them as personality disorders, we should think of them as zero degrees of empathy. And I'm calling them zero negative because there's very little to recommend these states of mind. So let me tell you briefly about these three diagnoses. The first is borderline personality disorder. Some of you may be able to see the photograph there of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, We don't normally think of her in the context of personality disorder. Um, So she's much more famous for her career as an actress but actually she suffered from borderline personality disorder all of her life Um, borderline personality disorder is diagnosed when an individual has very unstable relationships where they can turn from being best friends to worst enemies very impulsively, very rapidly in their relationships so very extreme mood swings uh, venting a lot of anger towards another person uh, often threatening suicide in order to get their own way, which uh, makes me think of this particular personality disorder as involving very low empathy, zero degrees of empathy. There's a title of a book, which isn't mine, but which describes borderline personality disorder very well, which is, I hate you, please don't leave me. Uh, and that's really, it, it encapsulates in a very, um, a very neat way how people with borderline personality disorder can turn on others, um, so um, expressing the extreme of hate, but then within minutes can be begging the person not to leave them because they fear abandonment. Uh, we'll be looking a little in a, in, a, in a little while at some of the early experiences in childhood that can lead to these sorts of outcomes, but at this stage, it's just documenting one example from psychiatry of extremely low empathy. The second one is much more familiar to us, uh, the psychopath, or to give them their full uh, diagnostic um, name, psychopathic personality disorder, also called antisocial personality disorder. So here we've got an image you may be able to make out from the movie Silence of the Lambs, but uh, you know this isn't just something in fiction, uh, and in art uh, this is uh, something from, from our real world these are individuals who are super, superficially very charming so that we can be lulled into trusting them but actually it turns out that uh, their most consistent trait is that they lie uh, that they uh, can't be trusted once we discover it uh, these are the individuals who don't hesitate to hurt other people either by manipulating and exploiting them uh, or by physically hurting them and show no anxiety uh, or no guilt or no remorse at what they've done so if we think of the, of the person who claims to be the gas man and turns up at the front door uh, of uh, a widow uh, asking to read the gas meter and once he's gained entrance into the house mugs the old lady and steals her life savings, we've got some idea of the psychopath So the deception is part of it, and uh, some people would argue that the capacity for deception shows that the individual has at least the cognitive element of empathy, that they can manipulate somebody else's mind, so they must be able to at least infer what somebody else might be thinking or feeling, but they don't have the emotional response that we might hope for of caring about the other person. In my uh, earlier slide, when I talked about the man who was um, quite willing to push a broken beer bottle into someone else's face, and in fact uh, that ended up in, uh, in murder, it was a real story, it was provoked by uh, the, the criminal uh, simply feeling that he was being stared at, and so it was a, the smallest provocation was able to trigger the, the act of violence. The last example is uh, another personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. And uh, again the image here might just give you uh, an idea of what we're talking about. So this is the the Greek mythological character Narcissus who really only cared about himself and fell in love with his own reflection. But these are individuals who often become socially very isolated because all they really care about uh, are themselves. Again, like psychopaths they can Uh, sometimes exploit others for their own uh, benefits rather than thinking about what's good for other people and they often feel they're much more important than other people. So these are individuals who won't hesitate to jump to the front of the queue uh, rather than thinking that they need to wait in line. All of these three, I would argue, although we can see them as personality disorders, so I wouldn't want to uh, challenge uh, the psychiatric diagnostic category of personality disorders. They are enduring uh, states of mind. Um, I think we can also see them as examples of zero degrees of empathy. What I want to go on to next is to look inside the mind of some of these individuals to see if we can get a better handle on what causes low empathy in each case. So here we've got an experiment that was conducted by James Blair uh, when he was at University College London, uh, although he now works in Washington at the National Institutes of Health. So what he did was um, he um, went into Broadmoor um, and tested psychopaths using something called galvanic skin response. This is a way of measuring the physiological response that someone shows whilst they're looking at different stimuli. So here we've got the psychopaths being compared to a control group, people who don't have psychopathic personality disorder. But the individuals are being shown three types of images. The first are threatening images, like guns and knives. The second uh, are images of someone in distress. And the third are neutral images, like pieces of furniture. And he was measuring, you might be able to see it at the bottom, galvanic skin response, which is how much you sweat on the palms of your hand. He was also measuring physiological arousal, such as heart rate, so how much you respond uh, in terms of an emotional reaction to these different types of images. And what you can see is that the the psychopaths were only different to to the control group in terms of their response to images of somebody else suffering, that they showed less of an emotional reaction, less of a physiological emotional reaction to an image of somebody else in distress. So this is certainly suggesting that um, even if they can read someone else's mind at the cognitive level, they may not be able to uh, respond in in the normal way emotionally to someone else's state of mind. We might then ask the question, what's led to somebody to end up Uh, with zero degrees of empathy and certainly one strong uh, candidate explanation is the role of early experience. So John Bowlby's work is familiar to many of you. He worked at the Tavistock clinic in Swiss Cottage, uh, so here in London, Uh, and uh, he was interested in teenagers who ended up as delinquents. Um, The title of his book was 44 Juvenile Thieves So these were teenagers who were well on the way to uh, becoming psychopaths and he in fact called them affectionless psychopaths. But what he noticed about these uh, teenagers who were delinquents was that many of them had had experience of early abuse or neglect. Many of them had uh, been brought up in children's homes and institutions without the opportunity to form uh, affectionate relationships to caregivers Uh, Many of them had been fostered, and many of them had had multiple foster families in their childhoods. Uh, Some of them as many as 50 different foster families by the time he was studying them in their teens. So what he uh, argued was, you might just be able to see it, the projector is cutting off the slides a little bit, is that uh, these individuals had had the experience of insecure attachment. He argued that for an individual to develop empathy and to develop trust in relationships, they need to have the experience of secure attachment to a caregiver, and that if you've had insecure attachment, this is likely to disrupt your ability to trust other people uh, right through your life and your ability to empathize in relationships. I think the evidence is not just around delinquents because you can also see that when we look back at the childhoods of those with borderline personality disorder, some 80% of them suffered neglect or abuse in their childhood. So this is certainly pointing to something very important, namely the role of early experience and particularly the experience of, of care. But in case um, you're led by that into thinking that empathy and um, the erosion of empathy is all down to your early experience and your environment, you can see that this study by Avshalom Kaspi and colleagues at the Institute of Psychiatry, again here in London, is showing that there's an interaction between your early experience. And here you can see that along the horizontal axis, uh, the research group divided people into um, whether they'd had severe maltreatment, possible maltreatment as children, or no maltreatment, uh, and uh, which version of a particular gene the individual carries in order to predict someone's likelihood of ending up with a diagnosis of conduct disorder, the very same group that Bowlby was looking at, so delinquency in teenage. What you see is that uh, Caspian colleagues picked out one particular gene, it's called the MAOA gene uh, because there are two versions of this gene, we all have the gene in us, uh, but there are two versions of the gene in the population. And what you can see is that your likelihood of ending up uh, as a delinquent in your your teens is not just increased by whether you've had possible or, um, or definite maltreatment, but it also interacts with which version of the gene you're carrying. So it's it's evidence of both genes playing a role and environmental factors playing a role. And indeed, the the idea that genes might might be involved in empathy led us, when we were using the empathy quotient, that questionnaire I told you about earlier, to ask our volunteers to give us a bit of their DNA. So when they filled out the questionnaire and we were able to line everybody up on this uh, metric of empathy, We also asked them to use a cotton bud on the inside of their cheek, so we can ask them just simply to scrape the inside of their cheek, which releases a few cells, which allows us to look at their DNA. And you can see we were looking to see whether there were any genes that were associated with a person's score on the empathy quotient. And What you can see is that actually there's a half a dozen different genes that show a significant association with your score on the empathy quotient. So you can see at the top here I've put genes for empathy, but I've put that in scare quotes because obviously these genes aren't coding directly for empathy, uh, but certainly they're showing a statistical association with scores on a measure of empathy, suggesting that ultimately we will find that from the gene, which simply blindly codes for proteins, there will be many steps through to behaviour and ultimately empathy. I'll be coming back to some of these genes shortly because some of them, like this one here, in fact both of these, are involved in uh, the production of testosterone and uh, sex sex steroid steroid hormones that differ between men and women. Uh, In fact, we'll look at that right now because uh, we've also been interested to see whether over and above the role of genes, uh, whether hormones play any role in determining how much empathy you end up with. So what we've been doing is asking women who are pregnant and who are opting to have amniocentesis during pregnancy, where a needle is introduced into the fluid that surrounds the baby in the womb, whether we can have their consent to analyse that fluid for how much testosterone is in the fluid And we're doing that because here's the fetus, and the fetus is producing testosterone. We sometimes think of it as the male hormone, but actually both sexes produce it. It's just that uh, males produce at least twice as much of it as females. Uh, But some of that testosterone ends up in that fluid around the baby. So we measure the the hormone in that fluid, and then we're asking these women uh, if we can follow up after the baby's born to test the child to see how much empathy the child has and then look for any correlation between the baby's hormone level and how much empathy they have in childhood. We're doing this because decades of animal research suggests that this hormone, testosterone, organises the way the brain develops. We know this from animal research, but up till now it hasn't been possible to test this in humans. So what you can see here is that the children whose hormones we measured Uh, whilst they were still in the womb, um, are now eight years old, old enough to take that test of empathy, but it's the child version of the test. So again, we asked in this case these eight-year-old children to look at the photographs, to pick which of these four words best describes what the person in the photo is thinking or feeling, and uh, the language now is uh, is adapted for an eight-year-old child. Here the correct answer is that he's interested in something, Uh, But what we're most interested in scientifically is any relationship between your score on the empathy test and your hormone level in the womb. And What you see is that the line goes downwards, which means it's a negative correlation. The higher your fetal testosterone, the more difficulty you're having at eight years old in reading emotions in somebody else's face. So, although Bowlby was absolutely right that early experience and the environment is hugely important in determining your empathy, it looks like our our prenatal biology, both our genetics and also our hormones, might also contribute to how much empathy we end up with. Let's switch now to look at the brain because uh, so far we've talked about behavior and we've talked about some of the ultimate causes early experience and prenatal biology, but we, we somehow have um, sidestepped the important organ that uh, is responsible for all this, the human brain. What you can see here is that um, the earliest idea of where empathy might live in the brain came from this case study from neurology, one of the most famous case studies of a man called Phineas Gage. So for those of you who don't know the story, Phineas Gage was working on the railroad in the United States in the 1840s. And his job was to use a metal bar to push the dynamite down before they laid the railroad tracks. And one day, the dynamite went off a bit too early. And it blew the metal bar right up under his eye and through his brain. And it emerged through his skull. Now, the reason that I'm mentioning this is that Phineas didn't die from this horrific accident. He lived for another 12 years, and the doctors of the day recorded the change in his behaviour. And what they noticed was that actually, despite this horrific brain damage, his language was unaffected, his memory was unaffected, um, his uh, intelligence, his reasoning was unaffected. What seemed to have changed uh, was his, uh, his empathy that whereas before the the accident, he was described as a very sensitive, polite, considerate individual, after the accident he was described as very rude, unable to judge what was socially appropriate in different social situations. Uh, over a hundred years later, the neuroscientist Hannah Damasio was able to obtain Phineas's brain, which had been preserved in a vat, and put it into a modern MRI scanner, a magnetic resonance imaging scanner, in order to try and localise exactly where the damage in Phineas's brain was, and she localised it to the left ventromedial prefrontal cortex, so a part of the frontal lobes on the left-hand side. And the argument at that point, when her study was published, uh, was that the seat of empathy in the human brain was exactly here, in the left ventromedial prefrontal cortex. So if anyone asks you, where is empathy in the brain? (laughs) (coughs) That's the answer. And actually, um, uh, Christina mentioned social neuroscience as a a thriving discipline, Uh, and in the last 10 years uh, there's been a lot of neuroscience looking for the brain basis of empathy. Part of the reason why I decided to write this book was to try and bring all this together, because I think it's a very exciting field. And you can see that there are, by my count, at least 10 different parts of the brain involved in empathy. So the ventral medial prefrontal cortex is down there on the list. So Hannah Damasio was right. It's been uh, confirmed by subsequent studies, but it turns out not to be the only region in the brain. And uh, in fact, what I'm going to argue is that empathy isn't located in a single place in the brain. All of these regions, these ten regions, are highly connected, so that we can talk about an empathy circuit. And uh, if different parts of this circuit are either damaged, or not developing in the normal way, or go down for other reasons, your empathy can be affected. But you can see that there are at least ten different regions. I'm not going to take you through all of them, but we could at least look at this one here, the amygdala, Uh, which has been very well studied. Uh, It's in the uh, limbic system, so below the cortex, Uh, but you can see here that children who have conduct disorder, so they're on a career path to becoming a psychopath, these are the delinquents that we were talking about earlier. Um, If you put them in the scanner, um, as uh, Jean de Setti did, who works in Chicago, uh, he asked these teenagers to look at some movies whilst they were having a brain scan. And the movies involved watching somebody playing the piano, but at various points during the short video clips, the lid of the piano would fall down on the hands of the pianist. Sometimes the lid of the piano fell accidentally, sometimes the lid was pushed deliberately, but the uh, scientific question that De Setti and colleagues were interested in is what's going on in the brain at the point when you see somebody else experience pain. And what you can see is that he picked out the amygdala. We all have two of them, one on each side of the brain, as being uh, active in the typical person uh, that uh, our amygdala responds with more activity when we see somebody else uh, in pain. So it's part of the way that we perceive uh, the experience of pain in another person. And that these children or teenagers with conduct disorder showed less activity in the amygdala when they saw somebody else in pain. Interestingly, in their study, they also picked out another structure, the ventral striatum, which is part of the reward circuit. So, ordinarily, the ventral striatum is only activated when something pleasurable happens. For example, if you get uh, an increase in your paycheck at work, or if I show you your favourite cheesecake uh, your ventral striatum might light up but these children with conduct disorder showed an increase in activity in their reward circuitry when they were seeing somebody else in pain so this is telling us that their brain is not functioning in the normal way when it comes to empathy that they're showing an underactivity in parts of the empathy circuit in the amygdala but they're also showing some evidence of find- of, of experiencing pleasure that somebody else's suffering. I'll show you one other example of a brain region which is the the anterior cingulate cortex because again these children with conduct disorder show less activity in that brain, that brain region uh, whilst they're looking at pictures of emotional expressions in other people's face. So um, the short uh, summary of this is that empathy is distributed across a set of brain regions, the empathy circuit and what I'm going to argue is that irrespective of the nature of the act of cruelty, when someone commits an act of cruelty one or more of these regions in the empathy circuit is malfunctioning uh, or um, hasn't developed in the normal way. So up to now I've been talking about Zero degrees, of negati- zero, de- zero degrees of empathy that are negative, what I called zero negative. But I'm now going to ask the almost unthinkable question, which is, is it always the case that if someone has zero degrees of empathy uh, that it's always negative, or can it sometimes be positive? So is it necessarily always a bad thing to have low, uh, low levels of empathy? Christina mentioned that I've been working in the field of autism and the related condition of Asperger's syndrome for many years. And these are individuals who also struggle with developing empathy. They have difficulties with social relationships and with communication, being able to read between the lines in, in conversation, for example. And they also have difficulties in adjusting to change, uh, so that they need to do the same things in, in a very repetitive or routine way. So, if we just have a quick look at how people with autism or Asperger's do on this empathy test, you can see that when uh, people with Asperger's syndrome are given the test of empathy, they score much lower than men and women uh, in the general population, just confirming that they're having difficulties reading emotional expressions uh, and putting themselves into someone else's shoes to picture how they might think about the world. But alongside their difficulties with empathy, people on the autistic spectrum have a set of strengths. Uh, In particular, they have excellent attention to detail and they're very good at spotting patterns and spotting rules uh, or consistent patterns in the environment. They also tend to develop interests in a very deep way, so they, they don't seem to be very interested in superficial interests, but they like to do things very deeply people with uh, autism or Asperger's syndrome, it's very interesting that their difficulties with empathy don't tend to lead them to commit acts of cruelty. Their difficulties with empathy, if anything, lead them to avoid social relationships. Even though they crave friendships, they find people very confusing. So in their case, low empathy is not leading to an increased likelihood of cruelty. But it's leading them to avoid social situations. Their ability to uh, to spot patterns and rules in the world often means that actually they end up as very very moral individuals, um, and uh, and uh, like very clear rules which give them a moral compass. I'm just going to mention uh, one way of thinking about autism and Asperger's syndrome. Which is that these individuals, alongside their difficulties with empathy, have a very strong drive to systemize. Uh, they like systems. So, systemizing is a very different sort of psychological process. It's defined as the drive to analyze or build a system, any kind of system. And the thing about systems is that they follow rules. Um, so, you can see some examples of systems here mechanical systems like a computer natural systems like the weather, here on, the si- on this side of the screen you can see the notebook from a, a man with Asperger's syndrome who records systematically information about the weather. He goes out into his garden every night at midnight and systematically records the uh, information about rainfall, temperature, wind speed, uh, humidity and other fascinating aspects of weather. And his house is full of such notebooks because he needs to do it highly systematically every day. Uh, Abstract systems are another kind of system like mathematics and even collections. Uh, So taxonomies or collections uh, of different things can be lawfully organized. And what we see is that people with autism or Asperger's syndrome do very well on tests of systemizing. So this is just one example. Uh, where you have to try and figure out how this little mechanical system works, it's a little physics test, that when the wheel rotates anti-clockwise, you're asked what will happen to this point P, Uh, and the correct answer is that it will move back and forth. What we see is that people with Asperger's syndrome score higher on these tests than people in the general population in figuring out um, a novel system that they've never come across in terms of how it will work. So alongside their difficulties with empathy, they're also very good at spotting rules. They're using rules to develop their own moral compass, uh, but also their abilities to systemize can often lead them to develop uh, talents in certain areas. Before I end, I want to just mention a few other uh, topics. One is the question of whether empathy can be taught. So if you are low in empathy, Are there any ways in which you can improve in your empathy? Well, we developed this DVD, particularly for people on the autistic spectrum. Um, And it's uh, a DVD, as you can see, which contains uh, actors and actresses performing different emotional expressions. Here we're just looking at a still photograph, but on the real DVD, you click on a face of your choice and you get to see an actor or an actress performing a particular emotional expression. Uh, The DVD contains every known human emotion. Uh, There are 412 human emotions. (coughs) At least that was the number that we found. Um, And what we did was ask people uh, with Asperger's syndrome uh, to take the DVD away and uh, use it um, for two two hours per week over a ten week period. They were able to get a chance to just practice looking at faces to see whether they could become more familiar with labelling the emotion that someone else was showing on their face. What you can see here is that the group in blue are the um, people with Asperger's syndrome who used the DVD over this 10-week period. In um, purple are the group of people with Asperger's syndrome who didn't have the opportunity to practice with the DVD and up here are people in the general population. and What we're measuring is accuracy at reading emotions in the face. And what you can see is that um, just over that 10 week period from time one to time two, the people with Asperger's syndrome who had a chance to study faces and had a chance to practise uh, improved significantly in their ability to read emotional expressions. There's nothing magical about this. I'm not presenting it as a a miracle cure um, because all it's telling us is that empathy is a skill like any other human skill that if you get the opportunity to practice you get better at it and this has been confirmed in this particular study. Just to end, I want to uh, raise the question about um, genes and evolution. So earlier we talked about um, empathy having a partly genetic basis and of course anything that might be partly genetic may have been subject to selection pressures in evolution. So Franz Duval, the primatologist, is asking uh, the question of whether any other primate species might also have empathy and uh, his answer is yes, that if we look at monkeys and apes we can see simpler forms of empathy to the the skills that we see in human beings. And his argument for this is from observational studies that if you, for example, look at uh, social primates, uh, in this case monkeys, you can see that they often will share food with other members of the group, even genetically unrelated members of the group. Uh, Sometimes they'll show behaviours that we could interpret as helping, where one monkey will help another, Uh, particularly one that's been injured, uh, what he calls consolation. So when two male monkeys have a fight, a physical fight, which often happens, uh, when one monkey wins, there's obviously a loser, and very often other members of the monkey group will go over to the animal that's lost the fight, just touch them on the shoulder as if to show consolation. (coughs) Here, obviously, we have to be a bit careful that we're not guilty of anthropomorphism, But it certainly looks like in another species of of primate we're seeing signs of what could count as empathy. And Franz Duval argues that monkeys are certainly capable of reading a limited set of emotions on the faces of other monkeys. For example, they can distinguish between a monkey that's looking friendly and a monkey that's looking hostile. Um, He doesn't go so far as to argue that uh, monkeys, or indeed apes, have as much empathy as humans. So for example, there's very little evidence uh, outside of humans for deception. And We talked earlier about deception being an an indicator of at least the cognitive aspect of empathy, being able to appreciate what someone else might think in order to try and mislead them. Uh, And there's very little evidence of the pointing gesture in other species, whereas in humans, even by 18 months old, infants are pointing at things even before they have words to share their experience with another human being so empathizing with another human being but the only study that I've come across which looks experimentally at whether um, monkeys are capable of empathy was by Jules Massiman working at Northwestern University in the 1960s and he did something uh, very simple Um, so rhesus monkeys were trained to pull a chain in order to get food so that part of the experiment was very straightforward the monkey learnt the contingency that when they pulled the chain they got rewarded but then Massiman changed the contingencies so now the monkeys whenever they pulled the chain also saw that another monkey got an electric shock and what Massiman's uh, paper reports is that uh, these rhesus monkeys stopped pulling the chain. They stopped um, producing the the behaviour that would allow them to get profit if they saw that this was at the expense of another monkey suffering. And indeed, one of the monkeys refused food for 12 days. It's a distressing account to read in this otherwise very interesting experiment, but certainly suggesting that uh, some precursors to what we see in human empathy may exist Uh, in other primate species and therefore hinting at its long evolutionary ancestry. I'm going to draw some conclusions and then we can open up the discussion for comments and questions. The first point of my conclusion is I hope I've shown you that empathy depends on what I call the empathy circuit, a connection of uh, at least 10 different brain regions um, and that the way that Uh, those brain regions functions determines how much empathy we show from zero degrees through to uh, very high degrees of empathy that what determines how much empathy an individual has uh, is the result of certainly our early experience, the product of our environment, but not exclusively because we've also seen evidence for genetic factors and uh, in the case of uh, those Nazi doctors that we started off by discussing the role of ideology and cultural factors. The second point in my conclusion is that whenever someone commits an act of human cruelty I would argue that we're, what we're seeing by definition is an erosion of that person's empathy but actually at the point that they commit the act of cruelty whether it's shouting at another person or whether it's pulling the trigger their empathy is switched off Uh, But that when uh, we look at individuals who are low in empathy, although that might be necessary to explain human cruelty, it's not sufficient because we can certainly find examples of people who have low empathy but who don't go on to to commit acts of cruelty. Um, And uh, I I mentioned the case of autism and the related condition of Asperger's syndrome, uh, uh, where that's the case. And finally, I want to end with a note which sounds almost aspirational, uh, which is just to remind us that empathy is very important. Uh, I would argue that it's been neglected in our educational system, for example, uh, but also potentially more widely in in our political system because empathy is a very valuable human resource. I argue that it's the most valuable human resource because empathy has... The power, the potential to resolve conflicts. It can um, aid in conflict resolution uh, at a domestic level if you're having an argument with a friend or with a relative, but it can also aid in conflict resolution at a more international level where we have two states uh, in conflict. So I think that it's a, a neglected resource and one that deserves not just our scientific attention but our human attention. I'm going to invite you to visit um, this website for any more details of the studies I've been mentioning. And uh, thank you.
0: Okay. well, thank you very much um, for this very fascinating talk. I'm sure there will be um, many, many questions um, from you. We'll have about half an hour for for discussion now. Um, So, yeah, right there in the back. Do you want to start in the green shirt?
1: There there, there are some microphones that are coming. I think there's microphones going around, so if you could just wait until you have
0: a microphone in hand before you start asking your question.
2: Hi, I was just wondering if uh, you applied these um, modules or psychoanalysis to any present figures that might that we might deem as cruel, or any historical figures that were cruel, and see how they would fit in the empathy model. Be it, you know, looking at Hitler, or Stalin, how they'd fit in, or even present, you know, perpetrators of genocide now.
1: Right. I I heard some of the question. I missed the beginning, uh, but you're asking. Can we, apply the, can we apply this uh, same model to, to individuals in history? Is that right? Yeah.
2: Y- yes, whether we can tell if they lacked empathy or they, sure. if, or anything like
1: that. Yeah, I mean obviously uh, we're limited in that, uh, you know, the, the individuals who we think of as having committed um, crimes against humanity, uh, like Hitler or other um, historic figures, we can't study their empathy. Uh, we can we can look at the look at bi- biographies to get clues about what their empathy was like, but I think that's always fragmented evidence. And ultimately, as a scientist, I would want to um, you know restrict any claims to people that we can actually study today. So um, you know we've I, I, I described experiments where we've had the opportunity to put people into the lab or into the scanner to look at their empathy. So I think uh, we can speculate that this model should apply to individuals in history, but it is just speculation.
0: Okay, Um, they're in the black jacket in the middle. Sorry, there's many hands at the same time. I'm just trying to keep track. Um,
2: Thank you, Simon, for a very interesting talk. Um, I think the first thing I'd like to say is I'm not terribly impressed with the empathy of the uh, scientist who was uh, studying those rhesus monkeys, but my real question was to do with the um, the, the autistic people that uh, you researched and where you found that they have a low level of of, of empathy, and of course. Um, and, that, and, and my question is about the genetic aspect to it, because uh, empathy is very much a, uh, a human kind of attribute, perhaps, of consciousness. And I'm just wondering whether you did any studies on the genetic aspect of the, of the, the people who, who carry the autism or the Asperger syndrome.
1: Right. Um, so just to sort of respond to your initial comment about The empathy of the scientists who looked at those rhesus monkeys I I think I would agree with you I mean it raises this whole question about the ethics of animal research and um, when I was reading that that experiment from back in 1964 I was I was glad that the experiment had been done because it teaches us quite a lot about the empathy of another of another species Uh, but I completely understand what you're saying that uh, that the scientists who conduct these experiments um, you know, they, they may have to subject animals to uh, conditions that, that might, not be, might not be reasonable might not be humane luckily we have ethics committees these days that try to regulate what we can do within animal research or human research but to your uh, main question um, we have looked at genetics of autism and Asperger's syndrome uh, they're not uh, single gene conditions So they involve many, many genes. Uh, Some of those genes do correlate with measures of empathy. So we're very interested in trying to track down which genes might be particularly involved in the empathy difficulties in autism, but also which other genes might be contributing to those areas of strength that I mentioned, like the attention to detail, uh, the ability to systemize. Uh, But the short answer is that there are many genes involved.
0: Okay, many minutes. I'm just going to be a little bit rude and uh, slip in a question of my own.
1: Sure. <laughs> just because
0: it's a follow-up to the to the question that was actually asked before. Uh, um,
1: maybe, Christina, whilst you're asking your question, um, you could find somebody yeah, to have right. the microphone um, to.
0: How about right there?
1: Yeah. We'll the see. gentleman,
0: the sure. black spot. Right. Um, so you were asking um, uh, how it's possible that scientists... Uh, you know, subject animals to these studies and um, whether there might be a, a lack of empathy in those cases. And you were saying at the beginning of your lecture you were talking about this idea of turning other people into objects uh, and then you know, committing atrocious acts of violence uh, and crime to them and I was wondering uh, how much explanatory power really this concept of an empathy deficit has here because isn't it the case that um, these kinds of acts occur or are being done by people who, in other contexts, yeah. are perfectly empathetic towards their own family, towards um, members of their own species, yeah. or towards members of their own culture or country? Because yeah. you mentioned intercultural uh, conflicts as well. So, isn't isn't there something else that we need to factor in? Something like an in-group, out-group mechanism, maybe, or right. something of yeah. the
1: sort? Now, this is this is uh, a great question, and um, I'm glad you mentioned it because uh, in my talk, I was I was giving examples from psychiatry of people who have lacked empathy for much of their life, if not all of their life. So these are individuals who have, um, if not a permanent lack of empathy, a very enduring difficulty with empathy. Uh, Whereas you're absolutely right that in other examples, we might um, lack empathy very temporarily, in a very transient way. Or we might lack empathy in one situation, but not in another. So the Nazi doctors that were performing that experiment might have felt it was sanctioned by their society at the time to perform those experiments. Uh, But they may have gone home in the evening and read bedtime stories to their children, showing plenty of empathy in other contexts. So it doesn't, I think, change my general thesis, which is that there is an empathy circuit, and it can be influenced either by um, factors that can be very enduring, like the way the brain develops... And uh, or it can be influenced by very very transient situational factors, including your beliefs, uh, your ideology, and what you called in-group out-group factors. If your society um, tells you that uh, a particular minority is uh, is subhuman, then you can um, potentially treat them as if they are subhuman. Right. Okay.
3: Hi. Hi Simon. Hi, here. Okay. Uh, thanks for the talk. Uh, I've got a question about this mind reading DVD. Yeah. Uh, and it's about whether there's a difference between being able to teach an almost semiotic, uh, um, an, a semiotic reading of an emotion and whether that translates into actual empathetic behaviour.
1: Okay. That's another great question. Um, so. Um, I think that all that that DVD does is it targets one component of empathy, uh, which is the component of emotion recognition. So it's not taking the whole of empathy, which I think has many different components. It's just taking one component, which is can you learn to um, label, verbally label a facial expression? And what we could see in in that particular training study is that if you give people the opportunity to learn the verbal labels, I think that's what you're calling the semiotic aspect, they can improve. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are more empathic. They've simply got better at naming uh, the facial expression. But it's nevertheless a sort of proof of concept, a proof of principle that at least one bit of empathy, the, the verbal labeling of facial emotions, facial expressions of emotion, can improve. And you could imagine how you could build on these sorts of teaching methods to um, not just improve the recognition part, but also the response part. What do you do once you've identified someone's uh, facial expression?
0: Okay. We have a question there. Um,
4: hi. Um, you say at the end that um, you think that empathy is absolutely essential to an understanding of cruelty. So you, you. Um, You suggest that, basically, you can't have cruelty without a lack of empathy. And I don't know if that's entirely true. You haven't entirely convinced me on that. So I I would suggest that perhaps not all cruelty is due to a lack of empathy. For instance, I might push a broken bottle into someone's face. I don't do it very often, but sometimes I might. If I feel the person deserves it, I might notice that... I might know it causes them pain. I might see that. And I might think it's an entirely appropriate response, given what they've done, given who they are. Mm -hmm. And that is not in any way against my empathy. And likewise... Some people who are extremely manipulative, extremely self-centered, extremely cruel can be so effective as manipulators precisely because they do read people very well. They do understand exactly what hurts people and they're very good at this. And that's related to the previous questions you were pointing out about how well people read other people, how well people can be empathetic towards some, perhaps their own class, their own race their own species, but not towards others, rhesus monkeys, Jews, whoever else it is. Mm -hmm. So you haven't entirely convinced me, despite your fine side, that you can have cruelty, um, but with empathy.
1: Okay. Let me have another go. (laughs) Um, So, uh, the first example that you gave, where uh, you might push a broken bottle into someone else's face, but you might feel that they deserved it. Well, to my mind, at the moment when you perform the act when you're pushing the broken beer bottle into someone else's face even if you feel they deserved it, it was justified for example you're doing it in self-defence or you're doing it because your friend is being attacked so you're doing it to defend uh, your next of kin or or another human being nevertheless I think that the act itself means that to hurt the other person you've had to switch off your empathy in order to do it so you may have good reasons for doing it but you, your, uh, the ability to, to to perform the act, knowing it will hurt somebody else, means that you've got to um, uh, you've got to um, inhibit the normal the, the normal empathy that would otherwise stop you hurting another person. So I think you know the situation where, let's say, um, someone comes into your house and is attacking your child, and you decide to hit them. You've got one emotion, let's say the emotion of either self-defense or defense, uh, defense of your child, overriding the other emotion, which is the empathy for the person that you're about to about to hurt. So I don't think that just because you feel it's deserved means that um, your empathy is still high. I think it's actually one cancelling out the other at that point. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to do it. But this is, you know, this is a, it's almost a definitional issue. I'm arguing that in order to be able to hurt another person, your empathy has to be reduced. But whether whether that's for reasons to do with your current state, your current emotional state or your current beliefs, or for more enduring neurological reasons, in order to be able to do it, uh, your empathy must be reduced. The second example you gave, can you just remind me, about manipulation, yeah, it's a very good example. And what I was arguing at the beginning was that when somebody is uh, capable of manipulating another person for their own selfish benefit, it's showing that they can use one part of empathy. They can they can use the cognitive element of empathy. They they can, for example, make somebody believe that something's true when it's not, or they can um, so they can deceive, but they don't really care about the other person losing in the situation, uh, they care more about winning in the situation. So I would argue that that's a, a, an example where the individual has an, one, one of the fractions, one of the components of empathy, but not the full-blown thing.
0: Okay, so I'm trying to fit in as many questions as possible. So we have the microphone here, and maybe the microphone on that side can go down to the lady in the purple sweater. You you've had your hand up, right? Okay, and then we'll keep yeah. going.
3: Um, it seems to me that the, uh, the empathy bell curve does tend to have maybe some sort of major ramifications for our sense of sort of social philosophy and, uh, and human rights because if you look at the left of the bell curve where I assume there are groupings of people, individuals, should we say, who suffer from a narcissistic personality disorder, borderline uh, and antisocial, um, then our definitions of actually what makes a human being a human will therefore become maybe more nebulous and fluid. In the, in the fact that you can now, as, as the curve illustrates, identify individuals who have, inverted commas, less humanity, less empathy, is it possible to develop a test for identifying those people who are non-autistic, but just in generally have low levels of empathy, and B, what do we do with them?
1: Okay, <laughs> <coughs> well, these, these, are, these are really important points, um, so, Um, I think think one of the the responses I would make is that when we're looking at people who have very low empathy, given that we've seen that that can be the result of the way the brain has developed, it makes us think twice about how we treat individuals who are at that point on the spectrum. Many of these individuals end up in prison because they've done awful things. So they end up in the criminal justice system and we treat them as as bad and uh, warranting punishment. But actually, if, if their crimes are the result of their neurology, of the way that the brain has developed or the way that the brain is functioning, we might also want to think of them in terms of disability. So if we think of other examples of disability, someone who's in a wheelchair, we certainly wouldn't say that because they can't walk, therefore they deserve some punishment. Um, but here we've got individuals who may not be able to empathise the, con- the, the consequences of their inability to empathise may mean that they hurt others but whether they deserve punishment for that or whether they should actually be seen in a different setting not the criminal justice setting but maybe the medical or the therapeutic setting I think is one of the issues that comes out of this way of looking at it one quick sure.
3: is, it is considered though that uh, we not having the literature I've read has stated that those kind of conditions, the plus for being narcissistic, antisocial, borderline, are actually very hard to treat.
1: Narcissistic is almost non-treatable. <coughs> well, uh, people used to say that. And um, certainly borderline personality disorder, if you look at some of the uh, psychi- psychiatric textbooks, uh, it's, t- it's described as untreatable. But actually there's very uh, exciting clinical work going on here in London at University College London by Peter Fonagy and colleagues, showing that uh, with imaginative uh, therapeutic methods, patients with borderline personality disorder can develop empathy. So he uses a, a technique called mentalization therapy, but where you're, um, you're trying to give the patient the opportunity <laughs> to learn the skills to empathize so whilst they're talking you're getting them to stop and think about other people you're getting them to imagine somebody else's perspective on what they're saying so it's a series of prompts but it's also giving them the the opportunity to learn to learn more empathy and he's uh, Peter Fonagy and colleagues are conducting uh, treatment trials where you randomly allocate patients into a treatment group or a control group and, uh, and showing that these sorts of methods do lead to some improvement. So, personally I'm an optimist. I, I like to think that, um, that education and therapeutic interventions have a chance of working. We should, never, um, we should never assume that an individual is beyond help and it may just be the limitations of our current methods if we're saying that we haven't yet found ways of helping. I think you had a second part of your question. Do you mind just repeating it? Well, the second
3: implication is, is almost... Uh, uh, do you want,
1: do you want the microphone, other microphone other again? Sorry.
3: Microphone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the second part of my question really was an implication linked to A Clockwork Orange and the Ludovico technique, which is that it, there may be individuals who feel that they thrive on the benefits of, of, of their lack of empathy and don't wish to change at all. Uh, and certainly in, in cases of people who are borderline psych- psychopathic or narcissistic, again, if they're actively enjoying uh, watching other people's pain, they may not seek treatment. So what do we do? How do we you know, define ways of, of, of treating or defining those individuals yeah. when we can identify them?
1: Yeah. So, that's right, so you were really asking about if we could identify these people early on, what would we do with that information? That's really important. Um, So, I think once somebody has got into trouble, either um, because of a criminal act or because they um, have had other kinds of difficulties where they end up in clinics seeking help, it's very clear that that then there's a point um, for intervention, for treatment or for rehabilitation and so forth for individuals who may be at large in society benefiting from their lack of empathy because it allows them some advantages in terms of exploiting others I think there's probably very little that we can do Um, but I think that given the the nature of or this notion of a spectrum of individual differences, the bell curve it may mean that we could be raising the levels of empathy in society starting off with children in, in school that although we currently in the national curriculum prioritize academic learning the three R's are sort of you know still at the core of the curriculum we could also be giving more space to developing empathy because we could sort of take it for granted some of those children will end up um, being um, exploitative and being uh, dangerous as adults but if we can intervene early not picking out individuals on the basis of their genetics or on the basis of of any other markers, but simply including it as part of the curriculum. We sort of assume that most children will develop empathy without any special help. And I suppose part of the message here is that whilst that's true for many children, that they don't need any special teaching to develop good empathy, some children are going to struggle with it, and if we don't intervene early, uh, well, it's at our own risk as a society.
3: Yeah. Yeah
5: your DVD raised some intriguing questions um, about the teachability, that is, about the plasticity of uh, the empathy circuit at various ages and various experiences. When you mentioned Bobe, as somebody who has spent a lot of years working with extremely disturbed children, um, the remediability of that sort of early Uh, emotional malfunction is possible and one of the tools might well be uh, a a tool like yours. It raises for me also the question uh, of another group of extremely (coughs) damaged people which are torture victims and trauma victims where we find um, a notable quality of an inability to recognize certain emotions or misrecognize them. And it raises some interesting questions about whether the cognitive can affect the neural function and whether you can make these two reciprocal, right. ma- change the function of, of that. Is there plasticity in the neural circuit that mediates empathy?
1: Right. Um, I'm very glad that you've, you've raised the whole question of trauma. Um, I, I mean i 'm not going to be able to comment on all of the parts of your question, but just picking out the the, the case that you that you, uh, you mentioned of uh, victims of trauma and how that can affect your later empathy I think that 's very particularly um, yeah vict- victims of torture, but actually maybe more generally uh, if you 've uh, if, if, if experienced abuse uh, as as traumatic, uh, and I think there 's a move to rename the the category of borderline personality disorder as survivors of emotional traumatic abuse, because so many of them have this link between early abuse and their later difficulties with what's called personality, but actually it's um, being able to form stable relationships. So, you know, we've known for a long time that those who are abused uh, and, by definition, suffered a trauma a percentage of them go on to become abusers uh, as adults. We've known this and it's, uh, it's in, to, to my mind it's, um, it's again another piece of evidence that in this case the early experience is a, a, a determining factor in how much empathy the adult ends up with. That the, the, the person who as a child experienced traumatic abuse may no longer be able to appreciate uh, what, they're d- what they're doing to another, to another child when they become an adult abuser. So it's, um, it, it's very, it fits very very neatly into the Bowlby theory that you're talking about. But I think you also raised the possibility for... I, I asked questions yeah.
5: spe- specifically about a group of people who have led uh, relatively normal adult lives and then had a the subject of traumatic abuse as a result of war or civil conflict or whatever. I deal with a lot of rape victims. Um, And whether there's any work that could be done or is being done, in fact, on, say, amygdala malfunction uh, or a neural circuit malfunction of the emotions (coughs) that are involved in that.
1: Right. And that 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 that's reconditionable. Yeah, no, that's very very important. I'm not not, um, sufficiently knowledgeable about... The effects of adult trauma, which is really what you're talking about, whether 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 you could lose some of your empathy as a result of, for example, the experience of rape, or the result of assault, um, or torture. Um, but it's a really important question that you're raising.
0: Yeah, up
3: there. Um, the example of the rhesus monkey. Something about it struck me, which was whilst one of the monkeys was a, it was a visual response and they could recognise uh, something was wrong. The response that they then did was was physical contact, which made me think 90-95% of the research you've presented is all based on visual recognition, if you will, empathy wise. Um, obviously, a, a blind person would be very poor at your tests on empathy of representing faces to them. So I was just wondering how much research has been done on kind of if you can pick up from an email when someone has said they're sad, whether that generates response, whether um, you can hear tone in terms of sure. You know yeah. how someone's feeling, or if they verbally describe it to you.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's really that's really important. That we shouldn't um, we shouldn't assume that empathy only happens through vision. Uh, although we do tend to pay a lot of attention to other people's faces, and that is through uh, information that we get through our eyes. You're absolutely right that all the senses are involved in empathy. So that DVD that I mentioned earlier, mind reading also contains um, audio clips of intonation. And part of, uh, part of the teaching method for teaching empathy um, in that way was to listen to audio clips whilst you hear sentences being spoken with different emotional intonation to see whether you can start to recognise or improve in uh, what someone might th- be thinking or feeling just from the tone of voice. And you, you mentioned the case of people who are congen- congenitally blind. And we know that um, although being born blind does delay your social development, actually, people who are born blind end up with very good empathy. So, vision isn't a prerequisite for developing empathy, even, even though it may slow down your development, as you'd expect. Shall we
0: take one last question? Sure. Um, right here in the front.
6: Uh, there the seems to me to qu- be quite a uh, coincidence or overlap between what you're saying from a scientific point of view and what actually Karen Armstrong, writer in religion, has said in, in, in a recent book, emphasised the importance of compassion. That's the word she used, not totally dissimilar from empathy. Yeah. And what she is, uh, additionally says is basically the difficulty of having compassion for others unless you don't have it for yourself. So what I want the issue I wanted to raise is really about self-empathy. And uh, maybe, again, it's certainly beyond childhood, but um, those who are the victims of abuse in childhood sometimes uh, indulge in, or quite often in a pattern, indulge in self-destructive behaviours, whatever there self-harm, yeah, sure. uh, could be addictive behaviours, uh, self-destructive behaviours. So I just wonder, uh, we've talked about empathy towards others, but what about empathy towards right. ourselves?
1: Right. Uh, well, as a last question, I think that's a great question. <laughs> um, <coughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm struck that the notion of empathy for yourself, first of all, you know, it could almost be uh, a contradiction because empathy is all about switching off a focus on yourself and tuning into other people. That As long as you're only thinking about yourself, you're not really in a state to empathise. But I think I know what you mean because I think you're saying do you need to, first of all, care about yourself, care about your, how you feel, and I think maybe a second component is: Do you need to be able to reflect on on your own emotions in order to be able to empathise with others? Um, so there's a condition called alexithymia, which is um, the ability to describe what you are feeling as a, you know you yourself are feeling. And it's very often the case that people who have difficulty with empathy, with describing what someone else might be feeling, also have difficulty in describing their own feelings, being able to self-reflect on their own emotional states. And uh, this has been uh, argued to be evidence that actually the same brain circuit that we use to empathise for others, we also use to think about our own minds. So the, the, if you like, the neurological machinery for thinking about someone else's mind is also used when we we engage in self-reflection. But I think, you know, what you're calling self-empathy... Um, certainly, that some of those patients with borderline personality disorder, uh, they describe a, um, a lack of... i um, trying to think what the best way of putting it is, but that they don't care about themselves, that their behavior can be very self-destructive. Many of them are engaged in, for example, um, self-harm, so cutting themselves, uh, possibly attempted suicide, uh, so really not caring about themselves, not valuing themselves. And at the same time, their behaviour is often not just impulsive, but very aggressive towards other people. So there certainly does seem to be a correlation between not caring about yourself and not um, not caring about others. But I don't know whether that quite gets at what you were asking.
6: Yeah, I, mean, it, it, I just think it's probably that... If you... Also, let me put it briefly another way. If, if you yourself have been through trauma and and neglect or abuse in childhood, um, perhaps it makes you capable of even greater empathy uh, for others um, simply because you you felt that yourselves, and, and you can you can put yourself more easily in the place of someone you've yeah. been in that experience and you need to you need to actually have some compassion for yourself and what you've been through too that um, right. we don't necessarily but i mean right. you know it, so in a sense, it almost increases that empathy yeah. for others, that feeling for others, right. because you can so much more easily put yourself in their place.
1: Absolutely, and so that's the that's the opposite case to the, the abused turning into the abuser. It's actually the abused turning into somebody more compassionate, because they've actually, they know what it feels like. And uh, you know, I suppose my my sort of message is that there are many routes to developing both um, high and low empathy, uh, but. Um, they all pass through a common circuit in the brain.
0: Okay, I know we could go on with this fascinating discussion for hours, but unfortunately we're out of time. Just as a reminder, there will be a book signing outside, and because of that, I would like to ask all of you to please remain seated just for a couple of minutes so that Simon can just get outside, uh, get set up at his table, and then we can all leave. And before he does that, um, of course, we should thank him for his fantastic presentation, and thanks to you as well for your